Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. But before I begin, I wanted to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming an Algonquin Defining Moments patron. As I'm sure you can imagine, researching and compiling these stories is no easy matter, and very time-consuming, especially since so many great Algonquin Park human history books are now out of print. To do so, just go to my AlgonquinParkHeritage.com website and click on the Be a Patron button. With four levels of support to choose from, there should be something for everyone. But if instead you'd rather just buy a t-shirt or a coffee mug or other merch, click the Gifts and Gears button. You can also go to my show page, www.podbean.com, and click there on the Become a Patron button on the top right corner. Either way, thanks in advance for your continued support. As many of you know, a number of episodes over the last few months have been related to Algonquin's wildlife, including the history of the interpretive program, the Harkness Lab for Fisheries Research, the Wildlife Research Station, and even some conversations with researchers themselves. Dan Strickland, former Algonquin Park Chief Naturalist, and Ryan Norris, Associate Professor from the University of Guelph, joined me in a wonderful chat about their long-standing Canada J research efforts. It's time now, I think, to talk about Algonquin Park's wolves and the people who have contributed to the defining moments that have affected them since the park's creation. Those who've listened to my episodes on poaching in the park already know some of the early history of the park officials' approach to wolves, some of which I'll repeat here. My research and reading for these episodes has been extensive, so I wanted to bring everything I've learned into one place and share it as even-handedly as I can. There is, though, a lot of paraphrasing, which I hope you'll forgive me for, and it comes from a list of references that have informed much of this episode. These include... Doug Pimlott and Russell Rudder's 1967 book, The World of the Wolf, Pimlott, Shannon, and Kalinowski's 1969 Department of Lands and Forests report on the ecology of the timber wolf, John Theberge's 1975 Wolf in the Wilderness, Dan Strickland's Wolf Howling Technical Bulletin number 88, George Warecki's 2021 book on Douglas Pimlott and the Preservationists, 1958-1974, and several articles that were part of a tribute to Douglas Pimlott after his 1978 death, including those from Lou Carbine, Bruce Littlejohn, John Taberge, and Theodore Mosquin. Unfortunately, the truth is that as long as humans have been around, they have had an uneasy relationship with wolves. As noted in a 2008 PBS blog called The Wolf Wars, America's Campaign to Eradicate the Wolf, for hundreds if not thousands of years, wolves have been hated, feared, and persecuted, and nowhere more so than in North America. For the indigenous people, perceptions were often mixed, with some groups creating legends and rituals that portrayed wolves as ferocious warriors, and in other traditions they were perceived as thieving spirits. Europeans who arrived on the North American shores seemed to despise them to an inordinate degree. Most of those perceptions were based on legends, myths, exaggerated yarns, and sometimes deliberate lies. 
As Pimlott and Rutter noted in 1965, and I quote, so deeply rooted was the prejudice inherited from our ancestors that anybody was prepared to believe anything about wolves as long as it was bad. Teddy Roosevelt, who many in the United States saw as the father of the conservation movement, was known to view wolves as the beast of waste and desolation. Even celebrated American painter and naturalist John James Audubon believed that wolves needed to be eradicated because of the threat they posed to valuable livestock. Now, anyone who studied early colonial history understands some of that sentiment. Small communities at the edge of the wilderness with domesticated goats, sheep, pigs, and cattle were an easy target. Wolves, being pretty smart creatures, took about a nanosecond to realize that docile cattle and sheep made easy meals, and as the PBS blog went on to say, suddenly colonists found their livelihoods in danger and they lashed out at wolves, both with physical violence and folklore that ensured wolf hatred would be passed down from one generation to the next. As John Coleman wrote in his 2004 book, Vicious, Wolves and Men in America, quote, wolves had a ghostly presence in colonial landscapes. Settlers heard howls, but they rarely spotted their serenaders. The fearsome beasts avoided humans. People frightened them, and colonists knew this. They are fearful, reported Thomas Morton in 1637, and will run away from a man that meeteth them by chance at a bank end, as fast as any fearful dog. And so, campaigns to eradicate wolves in North America began, first with private landowners and farmers baiting and trapping wolves, and later with professionals. Paul Schulery's 1996 guidebook to the Yellowstone Wolves, called The Yellowstone Wolf, A Guide and Sourcebook, describes the professional wolf killer and the devastating effect it had on the Yellowstone wolf population. For those unaware, Schulery is an American author of many highly acclaimed books on nature and conservation. He went on to write as early as 1877, Undulate carcasses in the park were poisoned with strychnine by freelance wolfers for wolf or wolverine bait. By 1880, Yellowstone National Park Superintendent Norris stated in his annual report that the value of wolves and coyote hides and their easy slaughter with strychnine poisoned carcasses have nearly led to their extermination. As noted in the PBS blog, Towards the end of the 19th century, wealthy livestock owners increased both their demand for wider grazing ranges and their influence over policymakers in Washington, D.C. In 1906, the U.S. Forest Service acquiesced to the stock owners and enlisted the help of the Bureau of Biological Survey to clear cattle ranges of gray wolves. By the middle of the 20th century, government-sponsored extermination had wiped out nearly all gray wolves in the lower 48 states and only a small population remained in northeastern Minnesota and Michigan. Unfortunately, in Canada, it wasn't all that different. James Wilson's report that I shared in a previous episode considered wolves to, quote, be voracious hunters of all protected animals in the park and were the natural enemies of every desirable form of animal life. He believed that, quote, a determined effort should be made to destroy them with no mercy shown, and best done during the winter when strychnine poison could be placed on deer carcasses on the frozen lakes.
park rangers, and even the various superintendents at the time referred to wolves as vermin. According to Pimlet, Shannon, and Kalinowski's 1969 report on the ecology of the timber wolf, through the use of poison and later snares, wolf killing from 1909 to 1958 ranged from a high of 128 in 1931 to a low of 11 in 1938. After 1939, when there was better record-keeping, on average, somewhere between 30 and 50 wolves were killed each year for the next 15 years. As noted in a 1993 Raven newsletter article that was called Kill the Wolves and Kill the Park, in the 1930s, the notion of killing off of all of the park's wolves was fervently desired by many people in Ontario. A 1933 special committee on the game situation which was composed of six members of the Ontario legislature and Jack Minor, who was at the time regarded as Canada's greatest conservationist, reported that, quote, no leading deer state or province has the wolf problem in so menacing a form as Ontario. Our observation of the situation here obliges us to place the wolves prominent amongst the cause of deer destruction during the past 40 years. Today, the wolf problem remains quite as menacing to the deer as ever. What is the explanation of this? Just as the strength of the wolf is in the pack, so the continuance of the pack depends on the safety of its retreat. Throughout Parry Sound, Muskoka, Halliburton, and the eastern hunting districts, the story was always the same. The wolves come out of Algonquin Park and go back there again to safety. Out of the park, they track the deer in spring into their yards over the snow crust, the she-wolves by this means good blood and food. This is not a new story. It was given to the Agricultural Inquiry Committee to account for market scarcity of Muskoka lamb. It was told to the government in the plainest language back in 1905 by the Ontario Game and Fish Commissioners. The very extent to the park constitutes its most undeniable security as a wolf retreat. Greater efforts, the committee said, must be made to control the vermin, meaning wolf, in Algonquin Park, to eradicate them from the wolf's retreat. Of course, examples abound today from around the world as to the price that is paid when top predators are removed from their respective ecosystems. Well beyond the mere loss of the predators themselves, in South Africa, for example, the successful extermination of bad lions, cheetahs, hyenas, and hunting dogs was that other good animals, such as zebras, wild beasts, and various antelope numbers, soared out of control, which led to overgrazing, soil erosion, river siltation, drastic declines in rhinos and water buck and other mammals, and local extinction of 13 kinds of birds whose grassland and river edge habitat had been destroyed. Not only were the predators lost, but the very environment or ecosystem park managers were supposed to protect was damaged. They were then forced to slaughter zebras and wild beasts and reintroduce lions and cheetahs. In North America, in, in the Kaiba Plateau in Arizona, thousands of mountain lions, wolves, coyotes, and bobcats were killed to protect 3,000 mule deer. Deer numbers shot up to almost 100,000. Vegetation was severely overgrazed and several other wildlife species disappeared before most of the deer themselves died of starvation. One only has to visit Victoria on Vancouver Island to see what overpopulation of deer is doing to the ecosystem there. 
Even the lieutenant governor's house has had to build giant fences around the gardens to keep the local deer out. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a single flower or rose to be had anywhere. Later, in the late 30s and early 40s, as interest in ecology grew, some grinding respect started to emerge from park officials, at least Algonquin park officials. As Frank McDougall shared in a 1941 speech, the wolf is the most hated of all animals in the park. This creature survives despite everyone's hand against him. And in the face of modern extermination weapons as the high-powered rifle, and in so doing shows wonderful powers of adaption. This wolf fills a place in a wildlife plan that is little understood as yet. From the little done so far, we know that often the wolf chases deer and has to give up the chase, proving the contention that a sound and healthy deer has a good chance of escape, even when hunted by a wolf pack, and that the wolf has to work for his food the same as any other animal. Wolves follow a definite hunting plan and travel by night through swamps and by day over high hills. And as Pimlot and Rudder echoed, man may never see wolves, but he senses their presence everywhere and soon learns that the better-known animals, the deer, the moose, and the beaver, are only secondary citizens, each paying tribute to the real king of the forest. Some park rangers loved to tell stories about wolves, and not all of them were negative. As I wrote in my book, Rock Lake Station, Ranger Stuart Eady's most favorite stories that he loved to tell children were about the time he had to camp out for the night and could hear the wolves howling close by. He made a bed like a hammock in a tree and slept there until nearly morning. And when he awoke, he claimed to have heard a sound under the tree and looked down to see two wolves with a beaver trying to get the beaver to cut down the tree. Another story that Art Eady, Stuart's son, recalled, happened when Art was about 14 years old. One sunny afternoon in winter, Stuart had taken a detour to check what he thought were some strange snowshoe tracks. Art had gone on ahead and was walking up Rock Lake across the ice, oblivious to the fact that four wolves were tracking his footprints. When Stuart, who was following far behind, came across the wolf tracks, he was worried that the wolves may have killed and devoured his son. Luckily, the wolves had gotten sidetracked and discovered two deer that they had cornered out on the ice, which Stuart soon came upon. The wolves had totally forgotten about Art. In 1939, J.R. Diamond, Smoke Lake leaseholder and professor of zoology at the University of Toronto, whom you met in episode 27 on the history of the interpretive programs, tried to convince the Department of Lands and Forests that their obsessive pursuit of wolves was unnecessary. He reminded McDougall of a report by one of his rangers who had spent a winter tracking wolves in the park. This report included observations about wolf habitat, such as the difference between day and night travel routes, hunting methods, size of packs, and the inability of wolves to always secure deer. This began to change in thinking that perhaps wolves were a species to be protected, not destroyed. Alas, not much happened for nearly 20 years, until February in 1958, when some semblance of protection of wolves in the park occurred. This happened when government biologists started studying wolf behavior and ecology. 
Leading that effort was Douglas Pimlott. Now, in order to do so, park officials were asked to stop the killing, which they agreed to do. Unfortunately, the locals were not all that happy. One widely spread story came from a local wolf-hating old-timer who said that the remains of 60 deer had been killed the previous winter and that he'd found them during a two-week fishing trip along a specific stretch of a stream in the park. Researchers, very much alarmed, checked it out by helicopter and on foot and found deer carcasses of only four animals in the course of a whole winter. Unfortunately, no one was really interested in the facts, and as was stated at the time, quote, the layman's contention that deer do not starve, that the trouble is only a matter of wolves, may be made with the force of a religious conviction, beside which tempered statements based upon biological findings seem of little substance indeed. The really sad part about that statement is that here we are in 2022, and one could argue that the exact same sentiment still exists. Once the initial five-year study was completed, Pimlet was understandably cautious. On making generalizations about wolf-prey relationships on the basis of a few years of work, However, he was willing to say that, quote, so far as the data went, the facts seemed to indicate that Algonquin Park needed its wolves. With plenty of wolves and plenty of game that has adapted to live there, the relationships between the wolves and the game in the park seemed to not be too far from the biologist's concept of a primitive balance of nature. As long as there was an abundance of deer, the wolves seldom bothered the moose or preyed much upon beaver or smaller game. Before delving into the details of what Pimelot and his researchers discovered, let's spend a few moments sharing what I've learned about the man himself. According to George Warecki in his 2021 book, Douglas Pimlot and the Preservationists in Algonquin Provincial Park, Pimlot was born in 1920 in Quayon, Quebec, that is located just west of Hull, across from Ottawa on the Ottawa River. He spent his youth on the Ottawa River, fishing and swimming, and a photograph at the time shows him successfully landing a 3-pound, 12-ounce bass when he was just 8 years old. And another shows him at 17 having caught a 35-pound sturgeon. During World War II, he served with the Canadian Navy and after the war first studied forestry at the University of New Brunswick and later in 1949 pursued graduate studies at the University of Wisconsin, intending to work under Aldo Leopold who was at the time one of the fathers of American wildlife management who influenced a generation of wildlife scientists." Unquote. After years of field work, Leopold had become convinced that, quote, the land was a single complex system of interwoven relationships whose health and stability depended upon ecological diversity. This thinking was, of course, a long way from previous scientific views which involved, quote, man trying to control wildlife populations through human intervention. His view was that this was not likely to succeed. As he wrote at the time, a thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. In other words, as Warecki noted, quote, humankind had to consider the impact of its activities upon the Earth's ecosystems. 
Now I want you all to stop and think about this for a minute. This was in the late 1940s, long before anyone had ever heard about climate change, nor seen the devastating impacts of indiscriminate mining, chemical and plastic pollution, and oil pipeline leaks that have taken place over the last 70-plus years on the environment. Pimlot's doctoral studies involved researching the ecology of moose in Newfoundland, and in 1950 he became the first wildlife biologist hired by the Newfoundland government. There's a great photo in Recky's book of Pimlot's son Mark sitting on the back of a tamed orphan moose that the Pimlots kept in a corral at their home in Cormac, Newfoundland, in 1953-1954. Up until that time, the late 50s, little or no research had ever been done on wolves. The closest work was research conducted by Olos and Adolf Murray. Olos studied the impact of coyote predation on elk populations under wilderness conditions. The two studied not just diet, but also other environmental factors such as weather, disease, cover, and historical patterns of wildlife abundance. They came to the conclusion that while individual elk were vulnerable to predation, overall the herds were not. Adolf went on to study wolves and sheep in McKinley National Park by analyzing sheep's skull size, age, and physical health, and as a result of that work came to the conclusion that the sheep and wolves together formed a self-regulating ecosystem in the wilderness and that the wolves were essential to the health of that system. This was, at the time, an unheard-of notion, but one which influenced Pimlot greatly, so that when the opportunity came along to head up similar research on Algonquin Park wolves, he jumped at the opportunity and came to work for the Ontario Department of Lands and Forests and moved to Richmond Hill, just north of Toronto. I think it's time for a musical interlude and I want to introduce you to a song called Reunion of the Wolves. It's a compilation created by Dan Gibson of Dan Gibson's Solitudes from the Algonquin Suite album. And it's important because Dan, who you'll meet in a future episode, was one of the first to be able to record high fidelity and high quality wolf howls. Thank <laughs> you. 
The overall purpose of the work was to, and I quote, determine the influence of wolves on wildlife populations and to provide a factual background for a judicious and efficient program of predator management, unquote. Note again three important things. First, that the focus was on assessing the influence of wolves. Second, that the idea was to use scientific facts rather than guesses or feelings. 
and that the end result was to be policy and programs for predator management rather than control. In a later episode, I'll talk further about the difference between control and management. For five years, Pimlot and his team of researchers tracked wolves from a helicopter over the winters. They located and collected deer remains that had been killed by wolves. They tried to figure out ways to locate and capture them, including the discovery, which I'll talk about later, that locating could easily be done using recorded wolf howls. They checked out food habits. Weather scent was how they established territories. Tried to figure out the population size and the stability, including testing and assumption that early mortality of pups or reproductive failure might be a principal factor in pack stability. According to fellow research L. N. Carbine, there was about Pimlot a charm and magnetism that quickly captivated everyone who worked with him. He was vibrant, enthusiastic, and always optimistic. Bruce Littlejohn wrote in a 1979 special edition of the Ontario Naturalist magazine that Pimlot seemed tireless, appeared never to give up, even when the going got rough and things looked hopeless. He was motivated by a love of wildlife and wild land and an unshakable conviction that each individual had the potential to change for the better, even complex events. In the same tribute, Theodore Mosquin added that Pimlot, quote, excelled in being able to offer good advice on strategy and alternative courses of action for dealing with environmental issues. He recognized the critical importance of having one's facts straight. Quote, what set Doug apart from other environmentally concerned and active people of his time was his personal integrity, his singular capacity to offer sound advice on strategy, his ability to foster commitments in others, and his belief in a code of conduct that put his actions and decisions above petty politics. There was also the quality and intensity of his own personal involvement and commitment. He took great satisfaction in hatching and developing strategies for action on an issue. He would spend much time listening and then speak out at key moments of decision, presenting information or arguments, and placing motions on the floor for debate and decision. Now let me share some of the interesting things that came out of Pimlot's research. But let's start with some fun facts from Rudder and Pimlot about wolf pups. Now as a background, Algonquin's wolf population stands at about 150 creatures, spread across anywhere from 12 to 15 packs. Each is composed usually of five to six animals. Although they can be of any size, what seems to be limiting the size is most likely the size of the available territory and the availability of suitable prey. Each wolf pack usually has just one breeding pair, and it is unusual for more than one pair to breed in the same pack in one year. The average gestation period is 63 days, with most litters of five to seven pups born in May. In fact, later research in the 80s and 90s showed that there was only ever one instance where they found a pack with two breeding pairs. Wolves don't mate for life and are quite choosy in selecting mating partners. Mutual preference is not common as they are also influenced by the existing pack social order. Wolf dens are constructed with a 12-foot burrow with an entrance that is about 2 feet in diameter. 
the end of the burrow opens up into a nursery chamber, and the dens are usually used only once. Sometimes the mother will move the pups to a different location if they perceive nearby danger, human or otherwise. When carried, the parents don't pick them up by the loose skin behind the neck, but instead look like they're about to eat them, mouthing them crosswise with the head on one side and the hind quarters on the other. Or they are picked up by their hips or one leg or sometimes the skin on their bellies. At birth, pups weigh about a pound and are short-legged, snub-nosed, rat-tailed little animals covered by dark brown woolly fur. And like kittens, they're first born with their eyes closed. After about 13 days, their eyes open, and about a week after that, they begin to make their first exploratory trips to the den entrance. When they first venture outside the den, they are not too steady on their feet, their eyes still a little unfocused. By eight weeks old, at about 15 pounds, they start to shift to eating more meat and less of their mother's milk. At 14 weeks of age, their coats are similar to adults, though still with gangling, clumsy movements. Wolf pups play involves chasing each other, fighting mock battles, and chewing up anything they can get in their mouths. These are the key elements of their play, and as they grow older, they indulge in longer games of tag and do a great deal of jumping, charging, and ambushing. When the pups are about two months old, the family moves to a more open area called a rendezvous, which is often a grassy area or dry marsh and is much easier to locate than a den. One of the last physical changes is the loss of milk teeth and their replacement during the fall and winter of that first year with teeth that will last them the rest of their lives. An ingrained instinct to care for the young extends not just to the parents but also to the adults of both sexes in the pack, even if those pack members aren't sexually mature. Parent wolves call the pups using a sort of intense, whimpering sort of vocalization, very different from the more regular howling and sometimes barking that is more usual of the adults. From the rendezvous sites, the pups are left alone at night, while the pack members go off to hunt. When the adults return, the pups will bite them around the mouth and neck, which seems to stimulate a sort of voluntary regurgitation, which is generally how the pups are fed. Only the most alert and physically perfect pups will survive to be two years old. Young wolves don't show any marked fear of man during their first three to four weeks, but if not handled daily, they become increasingly shy after that. And at two months, they're quite wild and would probably be difficult to tame. Captive wolves always take a particularly friendly interest in children and small dogs, and wild pups absorb their attention completely. Early on with the research, it became quite evident that though it was easier to see wolves from the air traversing lakes or moving through open, leafless hardwood forests in winter, it was really difficult to find them in the spring or summer, and it was almost impossible to get a close look at them in the wild. This led to a thought that perhaps hand-raising them in captivity would provide a better opportunity for observation. In hindsight, in later years, Pimlot realized that though his life and that of members of his family had been enriched by the opportunity to live close to tame wolves, it was wrong to take a wolf or any other large carnivore and treat it as a household pet. The characteristics 
that make a dog a good house pet have been acquired as a result of the deliberate manipulation of the gene pool by man, as Pimlot went on to say later. However, in 1960, in order to pursue this idea, the program leaders put out the word to the trapper community that if anyone came across wolf pups, that the Department of Lands and Forests would pay twice the going rate for anyone who could deliver live pups. Eventually, their call was answered, and a litter of five pups were found, and the Pimlot family took over their care. That summer, in 1960, their children, Peter, Mark, and Janice Pimlot, who were 11, 10, and 8 years of age at the time, had close association with the wolves as they grew up. The children fed them, howled with them, walked with them beyond the confines of their pen, and gave them names. Blondie, Dagwood, Kit, Lupe, and Puppet. To their surprise, all five wolves had unique personalities. Dagwood and Blondie were complete people lovers and extroverts. Lupe understood that people weren't wolves and was quick to let the children know if they were too bossy or had overstepped what he perceived as the bounds of propriety. Puppet was the mischief maker and the tease of the litter. Nothing was quite safe from his fast, snapping teeth and Kit was the shy, reserved one, who never quite learned to trust adult humans and always hung back, which made a close approach difficult to accomplish. The, through most of the summer, the family stayed with the wolves at a cabin on Potter Creek on Canoe Lake. And one funny story happened later that first summer when they decided to go on and camp at Potter Lake for a few weeks. Getting everybody to Potter Lake turned out to be a bit of a challenge as the pups turned out to be pretty nervous in a canoe. This meant that transporting them across the lake to the island that they'd chosen as a campsite had its own difficulties. Each had to be taken across individually. They had chosen the islands on the lake thinking that wolves didn't swim and so therefore wouldn't need much to keep them contained. Well, that turned out to be a myth, as within a few days, the pups were swimming around the end of the fence that had been put up, and by the eleventh day, were easily able to swim from the island to the mainland. Another surprise was to learn that the wolves, even with names, wouldn't come when called. But if anyone howled, they would all come running to where the howler was. Later, Dr. W.H. Gunn and his wife Anne came to visit to make recordings of the pups vocalizing. Dr. Gunn was a former Wildlife Research Station director and was a pioneer in the recording of sounds of nature. A short wire fence was put up around their campsite. This was needed as otherwise the five pups would have chewed up everything in sight or would have carried it off to be inspected and played with later. Of course, the fence idea worked until lunchtime that first day and the pups became aware that food was being served. Then there was mayhem, and instantaneously the pups found a dozen ways to get under, over, through, and around the fence. As Pimlot shared, quote, Before we realized what was happening, half of our lunch was gone. There was a wild melee for a few minutes as we fought for our food and heaved the pups over the fence. It was a rather wasted effort, for they promptly found another hole and got back in again. In the midst of it all, we roared with laughter. And I called out, shut the doors, they're coming in through the windows, shut the windows, they're coming in through the doors. Another great wolf pup story involved the Lake of Two Rivers Amphitheater. As Pimlot wrote, 
Late in August, I was invited to give a nature talk at the Lake of Two Rivers Amphitheater. We decided to take Dagwood along to add an air of reality to the occasion. At first, he was quite nervous, confined in the back of the panel truck. However, Peter and Mark crawled in with him, and he soon settled down. My wife, Dorothy, kept him out of sight during the early part of the program. But near the end, when I was talking about wolf howling, I brought him up on the other platform. At my signal, tape-recorded howls were turned on. Dagwood's ears perked up, and as he hesitated, my eight-year-old daughter Janice jumped up on the edge of the platform and began to howl. Dagwood put his nose up in the air and joined in with great enthusiasm. It was the first time most of the audience had ever seen a wolf, much less heard a wolf howl much less heard and seen a child and a wolf howling together, and it brought the house down. More than a thousand people rose in a standing ovation, and years later, people still asked after Dagwood. He probably did more towards creating a favorable image of the wolf than any other single wolf in history. The next year, in the fall of 1960, and over the winter in 1961, Dagwood also became a TV star, appearing on three of the King White shows. For those unaware, King White's show was a show that was used to fill gaps in the National Hockey League programming that focused mostly on hunting, fishing, and nature topics. Pimlod and Dagwood would arrive some time before the show was to start so that Dagwood could explore the set and the people there. Once completed, Dagwood would settle down and was relatively easily able to adjust to the strange environment. However, one time while waiting for the show to start, the script girl appeared, who was heavily perfumed. As Pimlot shared, quote, As soon as she entered the room, Dagwood's nose went up in the air. He quickly located the source of this new olfactory experience. His face mirrored pure satisfaction as he then rose on his hind legs as she approached, put his feet on her shoulders and licked her face. There was great hilarity on the part of the onlookers, but tremendous trepidation on the part of the poor script girl, who was not experienced enough with this type of wolf to be able to interpret these intentions from his behavior. In the summer of 1961, the Department of Lands and Forests obtained another litter of wolf pups from MacDonald, Ontario, just south of Algonquin Park. By then, Blondie had previously gone to live with Siberian husky pups, and unfortunately, Puppet had died in October of 1960 after ingesting part of an accidentally left-behind extension cord. The remaining three of the first litter, Dagwood, Kit, and Lupe, were then living at the Wildlife Research Station. So when the Pimlot family decided to head again to camp at Potter Lake, it was decided to also take Dagwood and Kit. By then, both of the wolves were full-grown wolves, though still sexually immature. Upon meeting the pups, their reaction appeared to be pure joy. They crowded excitedly around the pen, rubbing up against the wire, and when they finally were allowed all together, the pups quickly adopted them. They even began feeding the pups several times a day through the regurgitation method that I discussed previously, which must have been something to see up close. The only downside of that summer was that because they could swim so easily, Dagwood and Kit would often go off exploring. And of course, it didn't take them long to find Camp Erewhon that was located on Teepee Lake a few miles north and a bit east of Potter Lake. Not being afraid of people, they caused quite a stir, especially when they made off with swim trunks and towels from the swimming dock. 
Unfortunately, they had to be returned to the Wildlife Research Station. Soon after, the pups acquired listeriosis that wasn't diagnosed until all of them had died. Listeriosis is caused by bacteria that can be found in soil, food sources, and sometimes even the feces of other healthy animals. During the winter, when no one was around, once in a while, the three remaining wolves would be led out of their pen to go for a run. They would often wander off for a few hours, but always came back. This time, they didn't. Upon searching, Dagwood was quickly found. But Lupe not until much, much later. She had been shot by a park ranger near Whitney, whose wife had been frightened after having seen her silhouette outside the cabin and was worried about their dog. Both had not realized that Lupe was one of the tame ones from the Wildlife Research Center. The remains of Kit were found on Highway 60. She'd been killed by a hit-and-run driver who had purposely driven into her as she moved closer to the snowbank to let the car go by. One researcher, Lois Chrysler, wrote that wolves did not run, they flowed. And as Pimlot noted, Dagwood and Lupe flowed over the trails, over and under windfalls, and through the balsams and deciduous brush. They were as close to the embodiment of grace as anything animate that I had ever seen, and so joyous so much at ease and so friendly. Lupe and Kit's loss was a serious blow to the family. And alas, records don't say what happened to Dagwood. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Insights into some of the early Algonquin wolf research that was done in 1958 to 1962. In the next episode, I'll continue along the same lines and we'll talk about what they ate, we'll talk about some of the vocalization research that was done, as well as, of course, the history of the famous Algonquin Park wolf howls. Here's one last note from the Wildlife Research Station. Located in the heart of Algonquin Provincial Park, the not-for-profit Algonquin Wildlife Research Station has been pioneering biological research, wildlife conservation, and student training in the natural sciences for over 75 years. Today, the facility hosts some of the longest-term ecological studies in the world, which continue to provide invaluable baseline information for the protection of lands, waters, and their inhabitants. The Algonquin Wildlife Research Station is supported by user fees and donations. Visit algonquinwrs.ca to learn more and offer your support for their ongoing work in environmental research, teaching, and education. Music